Hello, my name is Bill Davis. It's my wife, Rita. And we are, have attended Austin Oaks Church for probably since about 2006. And we are involved in the um, marriage ministry here at, at Austin Oaks. And this morning we want to read to you uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman who gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The servant deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Amen. Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. I'm going to try that again. You guys are like, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. There we go. Yeah, I love it when a good southern boy reads because no one else says naked anywhere in the world that I've ever lived in my life. Or probably the devil probably lived on Manchac as well, right? Maybe visited Lano uh, for barbecue. Yeah, I could go on and on with the way us Texans butcher words. But my name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. If you're new with us, uh, I oversee groups and discipleship type ministries. And the heart of those ministries, as well as everything here at Austin Oaks Church, is to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. We want to introduce you to him help you know who he is, grow on that journey, and then become a follower where you then are using that, uh, what you've learned and growing to help others follow him as well. And so that's our heartbeat here at Austin Oaks Church. Uh, today, if you're with us, it's a great time to be here if this is your first visit, because we're kicking off a brand new series today titled Dark Matter. Let me explain this a little bit to you to set up this whole series, um, because it's a little bit of a nerdy title, but I think you're going to like it. Uh, this, we're in a season that we call Lent right now. Lent is one of the church seasons, many seasons that, that run throughout the year that brings the church across the world together. And Lent is that season that leads up to Easter. 
And kind of the heartbeat of Lent is to focus on the brokenness of mankind, sin in, in essence. And Easter then is obviously what God's provided for that. And so this series is a series that's really talking about sin. But the metaphor we're using is one that's revealed throughout our universe. If you've heard the term dark matter, a dark matter as defined by scientists is this, a component of the universe whose presence is discerned from its gravitational pull rather than its luminosity. Like dark matter is something that none of our scientific instruments can detect. It doesn't give off light, it doesn't reflect light, it doesn't absorb light. It's basically invisible to our scientific technology. The only way that scientists know that it's out there is because when they observe the motion of our universe, it doesn't make sense that planets and galaxies move like they do unless there is significantly more mass or matter in the universe. So let me help you connect it. Our, our planet orbits around the sun because of the gravitational pull of the sun. If the sun wasn't there, our planet would travel very differently. Well, the same is true for everything in the galaxy. And the galaxy's moving as if there is significantly more mass creating a greater gravitational pull on it than what we can observe. In fact, that mass and matter is so much that 85% of the universe, scientists have de determined, is dark matter. 85% of it. Significantly more than what we can see is out there that we have no way of detecting it. In fact, that's just the matter. 95% of the matter and energy out there is part of this dark matter. And that's a powerful metaphor for sin. Sin is one of those things that we are really have difficulty detecting in our own lives, but it has incredible sway and influence on everything around us. And so that's where we're going with this. This Dark Matter series is about sin, and the journey we're going to go on over the next four weeks is first today we're going to look at where did sin come from? Where does it come from? The next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the journey that sin will take you on. What's the journey look like and what's the destination? And ultimately, we're going to look at what can defeat sin. What will eliminate it or defeat it in our lives? So the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at those things. And that's the journey we're on with dark matter. So nerd out a little bit, research a little bit this week. I think you'll find it to be both fascinating and intriguing and a good metaphor uh, for sin in our lives. Let's pray, and we're going to jump in. We're going to be in, as you heard read today, Genesis chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is that original book in the Bible, the very first one. If you have a Bible with you or get on your Bible app, you can follow along. The verses will be on the screen as well. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this series on dark matter or sin. Father, thank you for the goodness in who you are. Lord, you are not good because you do good things. You define good. You are the essence of good. Everything that you do is good. Whatever you do defines what is good. And Lord, that's a concept that's hard for us created beings to understand. And so we question you. We doubt you. We wonder if Everything you're doing is good, and, and we are arrogant enough to put ourselves in the seat of judgment over the Creator, us little creations, and think we might know better. 
Lord, help us see today how truly good you are and open our eyes to the many ways that we doubt your goodness and as a result harm ourselves and those around us. Lord, open our eyes to these truths, Spirit, work in our lives, and I pray, Lord, that you would meet each person here today right where they're at, whatever they walk in here carrying. Maybe many things they're aware of, oftentimes many things that we're completely blind to, but you are God who opens our eyes. So, Lord, reveal to us those areas in which we are doubting you and doubting your goodness so that we might walk more faithfully with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our family took a, a road trip over spring break, something that we haven't done in quite a while. Uh, we wanted to just get out of town, hadn't done that in the three and a half years we've been up here in Austin. And so uh, the, the girls, we just have two girls at home now, our older three kids are out of the house. So I'm outnumbered when it comes to vacations. Okay, I'm just going to say that. I realize what the next several years are going to be like for me. Uh, very different trips than I would have like gone camping, and we probably wouldn't have showered for that whole time, but that's just not going to happen for the next few years. So anyways, the, the, uh, the consensus was beach. We wanted to try to do a beach, and so I said, okay, we've got to find a beach we can drive to in one day. So they got on research, we started looking, and none of us, other than my wife, my wife had a grandmother who lived in Florida, none of us had ever been to Florida. Uh, it was one of the few contiguous states that I hadn't been to. And so they looked up Florida. I said, it's going to have to be in the panhandle, that top little section. It would take too long to get down there. So they find a beach in Florida. And th so we map out our trip. We pack everything into our little CRV. We're like sardines in there as the four of us take off. And we're driving it. And let me just tell you, spring break, you know, just recent events, it's everyone in the world literally, I think, is converging on beaches in Florida during that time. And traffic is a nightmare. Gas prices, and, I'm, and, and my frustration level as we're driving is just kind of slowly rising, as you can imagine. And I'm realizing, man, we're sitting in traffic, there's construction, uh, we're waiting. In fact, and just to give you a concept, on the way home, it, we thought it would be better on the way home. On the way home, an 11-hour trip turned into 18 hours. We left at 9 a.m., stopped for one meal in the sense of sitting down, getting out of the car, and we got home at 3 a.m. the next morning. I was done. Like, gas prices going through the roof. We're sitting there in traffic. You have all this time. And, and guess what happens when you're just sitting there, like, not really doing a whole lot? You're starting to think, like, whose fault is it that gas has gotten so stinking expensive right now? Now, and I'm thinking, it, it's, I mean, everyone's saying Biden, right? He shut down the Keystone Pipeline. It's got to be Biden. But Biden says it's Putin. Putin's, it's Putin's fault. They invaded Ukraine. That's driving up gas prices there. Other people say it's big oil. You know, big oil's making all these profits. It's got to be, all, all I know is it's not my fault. It's someone's fault out there that gas prices are so high. I mean, it has nothing to do with the fact that I don't want to go to Galveston to the beach. Galveston's just right down the road here. We could have gone to LBJ. We could have gone to Lake Travis for a beach. But no, we deserve to go to Florida. We deserve a trip to Florida. I mean, granted, Jesus never traveled further than 150 miles, you know, in his whole lifetime. But, but I, I should be able to travel further than God did while he lived here on earth, shouldn't we? It can't be my fault. In fact, it certainly isn't, I don't know if you know this, but modern cars, 
Like in, in 2021, we reached the highest level of average horsepower in a car that we've ever had. 252 horsepower is the average car's horsepower. And we're Texans, like we don't drive cars, we drive trucks. You know what the average truck horsepower is? 340 horsepower. Do you even know what a horsepower is? <laughs> right, in 1980, 101 horsepower was the average horsepower. Now it's 252. A horsepower is this ancient form of measurement that's the equivalent of like what one horse is able to do in its work power, okay? Just one horse, it's real simple. Horsepower, they named it, it's real easy. And, and, and for 5,000 years, I started thinking, 5,000 years, one horse was sufficient to get the typical person in our, in our world around. For 5,000 years, people used horses and they walked, they used horses. Now, if you were a little bit more snaggy, you might have two horses hooked up to your cart. And if you really thought highly of yourself, you might have four horses pulling your cart around, like if you're Ben-Hur or something like that, right? Four horses, but not us today. Man, 252 we need. In fact, we're Texans, 340. We need that horsepower to get our kids to school, right? I mean, our kids are heavy nowadays. You need 340 horse to get back over to work on this side of town and then drive all the way over here because this is the neighborhood we should be living in, you know, if, given all the things we have. And it started making me realize maybe Biden's not the blame. Maybe it's not even Putin. Maybe it's not even big oil. Maybe I'm the problem. Nah, it can't be that. It's, it's got to be Putin, right? It's got to be Putin. I could never be the problem. Humor aside, though, when we start to think about the problems that we face in this world and we surface them over these next few weeks, we're going to realize that it's our nature when it comes to sin to always find the problem out there. It's always out there. Very rarely, if ever, will we turn the finger back in and say, is that really the problem? Because that person out there, guess what they're doing? They're finding the problem out there as well. And everyone just is pointing fingers everywhere else, but the one thing that's common amongst every single problem is us. You see, maybe the problem in your marriage is not your partner. The struggle you're dealing with in your marriage is really not your partner. It's easy to point it there, but when it boils down to it, it's closer to home. What if the anxiety you feel at work is not your work environment, your new boss, the financial crisis you're in, or the breakup you just went through. Maybe that's not really the problem. What if the anger you're experiencing is not due to politics or economics or the fact that your senior pastor is not preaching again on Sunday? What if the problem is a lot closer to home? And that problem is actually you. That's what we're going to look at 
today. That's as we start this journey of sin and its deceptiveness and how we let it deceive us, we're going to realize that the issue of sin is rarely an external problem. Now, there's certainly problems out there, but they're really not greater than the issues that are right here inside of us. So if you have your Bible with you, Genesis chapter 3 is what we're going to look at today. And I want to answer two questions from this passage today. Two real simple yet incredibly important questions. Where did sin come from? Where does it really come from? Does it come from somewhere out there? Or does it reside a little bit closer to home? And secondly, how do I know sin is present? How can I determine whether it's present in my life? Where did it come from? How do I know that it's present? So as we saw in our passage, we see this story about Adam and Eve in the garden and a serpent. And, and let me just pause here to answer or, or just to, to at least address this. This is a, a bit of a weird story. Like, if you've been in church for a long time, you just kind of come to accept that. Hey, yeah, I know that story. But if you're new with us today, and, and, and many of you are coming in, like, this is a weird story. Like, two naked people in a garden with a snake that's talking. It sounds a little bit like Austin, doesn't it? Like, you might expect to see that going, like, hiking somewhere up Barton Creek. You could just come across something like this here in Austin. But, like, it's in the Bible. That's kind of weird. So I'm just going to give you permission. If this is hard for you to believe that this really happened, that's okay. It's not as important that you believe it happened exactly like this, or at least that's not where you need to start. I want to ask you to at least put that aside and answer, is this story telling something that's consistent with reality? Start with that. If you want to reject the story and its authenticity, go ahead and reject it. But at least have the ability to stop and say, does this seem to portray reality? Because that's the ultimate measure of truth in many ways. Does it describe reality? And I can tell you this, having read a lot of stories of lots of different religions and having a science background myself and even knowing what science brings to the table in terms of truth, nothing else describes the reality of what we see in the world and why there's brokenness like it does. Like this story, not even close. No other religion, no other source have I found that's as clearly true when you stop and look at it as this story. So let's take a look at it and see what it says. As we heard read, uh, I want to go back a little bit because there, there's some context you need in chapter 2 to set up chapter 3. These first three chapters really go together. And in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2, we see the context that sets it up. Adam and Eve have been placed in the garden. God's given them all these trees, all this fruit, an abundance of things to partake in, he says. You can, you can freely eat, he says, of all of these things. But, he says, there's one tree that I don't want you to eat from. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's verses 16 and 17. And in his, in his statement, he's emphasizing it. If you could read it in the Hebrew, the Hebrews had a way of emphasizing something abundantly by they double the word up. So in the, real, in the Hebrew, it says, you can eat, eat of any of these trees. Like he says, just go for it. Fully enjoy everything that I've given you is what God says. But he says of this tree over here, this one tree, if you eat of it, he says, this is actual, you will die, die. Like, 
meaning it's done. This is not good. God makes it very clear to them what his expectations are in that. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 3. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from the tree, fruit from the tree, any of the trees in the garden? Notice what he does here. Did God really say to you, you must not eat of any of the trees in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He said, you can go for it, abundantly enjoy everything that I've given you except for this one. And Eve says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, or you, and if you do, you will die. And here it comes in verse 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Notice what he does here. He does two things. First, he tells a lie. He sows a lie. You won't die. And then he gets to the heart of it. He says, God knows that if you do that, you know, you're going to get this and this and this. He, he sells a lie that's based on the fact that God is holding out on them. That he somehow doesn't have their best interests in mind and is kind of keeping the man down. That's the, that's the mindset that Satan's pointing out here right away off the bat to kind of lure them in. And verse 6 says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her or she thought it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Where did sin come from? Here's the heart of it. Here's, if you get nothing out of this message today, I hope you walk away with this simple point. Sin comes, the root of my sin is lack of trust in God's goodness. The root of my sin is lack of trust in God's goodness. They doubted God's goodness. They believed this lie of Satan because they doubted that God was good. Now, now keep in mind, again, keep the context. They were in this utopic garden. They had an abundance of trees all around them that God said, enjoy yourselves. This is, this is such an important concept. Please listen. God is not the killjoy that most of us in our hearts continually want to believe that he is. We constantly keep thinking, he won't let us do this, he won't let us do this, and it seems like those are all the fun things. That's what we believe. That's an absolute lie from the pit of hell. Because we see right here, there was an abundance of things that he says, eat, eat, freely enjoy these things. But don't go there. Don't move to a place of doubt. And that's exactly where we often go. See, the serpent denies God's word and he challenges God's goodness. And we doubt what God says as well because we doubt he's good. So, so why is that such a big deal? Why is doubting God's goodness so bad? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Because honestly, I think this is at the heart of this passage. And when you can understand this concept of why, like, just that's it? She just picked a piece of fruit? 
and, and now we're in the situation we're in. Again, that's a, that reveals to us how broken and blinded we are as creations that we feel we're in a spot to, to judge God. But let me just, as much as I can as a human and as much as I can with finite information, try to help us understand why this is such a horrible act here. See, disobedience to one who is infinitely good and is offered an infinite good is an infinite evil. Let me say that again. Disobedience to a person or a being who is infinitely good and who has offered us an infinite good becomes an infinite evil. I've been wrestling with this week with how do I give an analogy that, that can somehow explain this? And, and here's what I came up with. It's far from perfect, but I hope it'll at least help you understand. Here's an analogy that'll help you understand this. Let's pretend you're an accomplished collector of famous sports memorabilia. Okay, that's, that's what you do. You're like one of the best in the world. You're an accomplished person. You collect these, these famous sports memorabilia, and, and now you have an apprentice that you're training up because you can't be at all the events, and you're sending them out to certain events. You're giving them resources, and their job is to purchase these great sports memorabilia for you, okay? And so you send them out, and, and you send them out on your behalf, and you've given them authority to use your resources, and, and your apprentice goes to an auction, to see two Dallas Cowboys memorabilia. Okay, there's two of them there, and he, he sees them pop up. You're a Cowboys fan, so if you recognize, hey, if he can bring something home that's related to the Cowboys, that's, that's a big deal to me. So one will say is a, is a signed jersey uh, from Troy Aikman that he wore in his final game. And he's going, whew, that's kind of a big deal. I, I, think my, I think my boss would really like that one. But then they bring out another jersey of another great Cowboys quarterback. In fact, one who has better stats, the best statistics of any of the Cowboys quarterbacks ever. And it's Tony Romo's jersey. And it's his final game, and his is signed, and they're both there. And he's going, wow, and which, which, one, should I, which one should I grab? And he says, well, I'm going to grab Tony Romo's because it's more recent. And he purchases it, and he brings it back to his owner, you. Huge Cowboys fan. And you're going to probably say to him, because I know you're all a Cowboys fan, you're probably going to say to him the same thing I would say to him. Not such a great buy. I mean, granted, statistics are better, but, but what's really the pinnacle of playing football? Winning the Super Bowl. How many Super Bowls does Tony Romo have? Zippo. How many does Troy have? He's got three. And so you're going to be disappointed. Now, was buying the Tony Romo jersey an immoral bad act in and of itself? No. It's lessened because he could have gotten something that was much better. But see, that's not the point. That's just setting you up. You can see how it's not a good purchase, not in and of itself, but because there was something better. But let's take this one step further. Let's say now you send them out to a basketball memorabilia sports event. Same thing, he's got the resources he needs to purchase, and he gets there, and, and what comes up first is a, the Michael Jordan's shoes that he wore in his last championship game that he won, and inside the shoes is the actual championship ring that he won with that. That's, what, that's, that's the first thing that comes up. Like, woof, you're going, this is good. 
And then right next to it, I got to read this because I had to look something up like this to compare it. Right next to it is Mark Madsen. Yeah, the shoes worn by Mark Madsen. You know the guy that led Stanford into four NCAA playoff bursts? You know Mark Madsen, right? He was drafted number one by the Lakers. And in his years with the Lakers, he averaged 2.4 points every year. Now, he's got two, two championships with them, but then he was traded to the Timberwolves. And listen to this. It only gets better. He averaged 0.4 points over seven seasons with the Timberwolves. Like, how do you even score 0.4 points? I, I was, I was trying, all right, that was a bad joke, but it's 9 o'clock. I'm trying to wake you up a little bit. Mark Madsen's shoes are there as well. Michael Jordan's, Mark Madsen. Mark Madsen has one of his championship rings in there as well. And he's thinking, man, he was drafted by the Lakers. The Lakers are kind of a big deal. And he purchases the Mark Madsen stuff for the same thing he could have bought the Michael Jordan stuff for. Brings it back to you and hands it to you. How are you going to feel about that purchase? You're going to be livid. If you're a huge sports memorabilia fan, you realize the Michael Jordan shoes and ring may be one of the premier sports things that you could possibly purchase. And it's available. It was available for him to get. And instead, he chooses the Mark Madsen. Now, is it immoral to choose the Mark Madsen stuff? No. What makes it so bad? What makes it so bad is he could have had so much more by purchasing the other. Now let me just add one thing to that. What if you told him when he went to that event, he said, hey, get the best thing you can, but there's just one thing I want to make sure you don't do. Don't buy anything from Mark Madsen. Now, how does that look? This does not even compare to what took place in the Garden of Eden. It's the best I could do to start to help you realize when you disobey an infinitely good being who is offered an infinitely good option for you, it becomes an absolute evil. And it's at the heart of everything we do as people over and over again. Let me ask you this. Can you admit that you doubt God's goodness in some area of your life? Do you have the courage to admit that on a regular basis, and maybe in some very key areas, you are doubting God's goodness on a regular basis. You think he's holding out on you. God, God, why aren't you giving this to me? Why aren't you getting this for me? Why aren't you arranging that for me? Can you accept that your inner doubt, not your outer dilemma, is your real problem? See, most of us have excuses. It's just my circumstances. I didn't have the opportunities this person had. Or if this person was in my life, I weren't married to that person. If, if this job situation wasn't the way it was, if my boss wasn't who he was, can you admit that your greater dilemma, your infinitely greater dilemma, is not an outward problem, but an inward one? I mean, Eve could have easily 
Just said, oh, you know, there's that tree. If you wouldn't have put that tree in the garden, we're going to see she's going to try to do that. But can you admit that the real issue is your doubting of God? I love what one theologian said about this kind of a concept. He says this, an ounce of sin can destroy you more than 10 tons of suffering. An ounce of sin can destroy you more than 10 tons of suffering. The point of that is this. Nothing outside you is nearly as detrimental and damaging to you than what's going on inside. And until you can grasp that concept, you remain victim to the same exact thing that Adam and Eve did to start things off. That's the reality. That's the reality in our world. That's what we see around us everywhere we go. I am my own biggest problem. Here's what I want you to do right now. I want you just to turn to the person next to you, turn to the person next to you and say this to them. Say, I am my own biggest problem. Turn to them right now. Say it a little bit louder because you're trying to cover it up. I am my own biggest problem. And then say this, say this next. I am responsible for the presence of sin in our world. Say that to him. Turn to him and say, I am responsible for the presence of sin in our world. And then say back to him, say, you're exactly right. <laughs> I want you to listen to a singer-songwriter, one of the greatest singer-songwriters of our generation who preaches a very powerful yet simple message in a song about this very truth. I don't want to leave this truth until it sinks in. Because if, like I said, you get nothing else out of today's message, if you can walk away with this principle, you put yourself in a place where you can truly begin the journey of dealing with sin in your life. You don't deal with it by pointing at that person or that situation or that circumstance or, or this over there. You have no control over that. But if you'll start to deal with it here, then you'll begin a journey of freedom from something that has enslaved the human race from the beginning of time. So listen closely to this song, reflect on it, and then we'll come back and talk about evidence we see in our lives for sin's presence. I took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters of the sea, but it only took one little lie to separate you and me, oh, we are not as strong. As we think we are. And they say that one day Joshua made the sun stand still in the sky. But I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. As we think we are 
simple little song by Rich Mullins that I think captures that truth so powerfully. One little lie that we believed and darkness fell upon us. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just made that part up. So second thing we want to see today is how do, I, how do I know sin is present? So this is where sin came from. We were that problem. There's an, op an opportunity of trust. We broke that trust. We doubted God's goodness. And that's at the heart of every sin that we commit. We still do that today. But, but how do we know it's present? If it's like this dark matter, and I think it is, it's hugely present in our world, but we overlook it. We look at the obvious. We see all these problems out there, and we don't think it's here. We can't examine it in our lives. I want to give you some signs that we see in this first story that reveal the presence of sin. These aren't my ideas. They're right here in the story we look at. So sin has happened. Adam and Eve have crossed that line. And now we see the results of that, what, what happens afterwards. Verse 7 picks up in chapter 3, and it says, At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, or nakedness, however you want to read that. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God from among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He obviously knew where he was, but God's showing us this relational aspect. He, said, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree? whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? 
Now, now let's just pause here because this is a narrative story. God's revealing to us what took place. But what's the right answer right there? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? What's the right answer? Yes. But let's watch how the story plays out. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. Here's, here's the second thing that I want you to see. If you're struggling, and we all do, to see, I don't really see the problems in my life, Chad. I've been going to church for a long time, and, you know, I, I think I got things together. I've, yeah, I had some sin in my life in the past, but I don't see it now. Here's the evidence of sin in your life. Here's how you know that sin is still present in your life. The evidence of my sin is my hiding and my blaming. My hiding and blaming. That's the evidence. Now it can show up in a lot of different ways. Like I see, you know where I see it most often in the church? I shouldn't say most often, but more outwardly expressed is we love to blame all the problems out there in our city or all the politicians or all these bad people. Man, as Christians, we're phenomenal at it. But you know what we're doing every time we do that? We're revealing the presence of ongoing unaddressed sin in our own lives. When we constantly point elsewhere, just like I was on our trip, that wasn't Biden's problem. It's not to say that none of those things are problems. It wasn't Putin's problem. It's not big oil's problem. Even though there may be problems there, the real problem was me. I want more than maybe I can afford maybe at this moment, or, or I want more than maybe I should be privileged to at this moment. That's the issue. I want more horsepower in my cars. I want to be able to cover more territory. I feel like I deserve all these things. And that's at the heart of it. I can't change Putin. I can't change Biden. I can't change big oil. I have one person in this world that I can address. And I'd rather point the finger than address that person. See, every time we start blaming others, we're revealing sin in our lives. And shame is the other one. We cover up. We cover up. That's what they did. They covered themselves because of shame. Now, we don't necessarily use fig leaves today, but we cover ourselves in an infinite number of ways. You covered yourself today. In fact, how you covered yourself says a lot about it. How important it was how you were covered today reveals a little bit about your level of shame. Sometimes you can't leave until you're covered so well that you think you can portray to someone else a better image than you really have. Others of us do it by our work. We pursue and we work and we go, and by golly, I'm going to prove to this world that I'm worthy. I, I have shame, but I'm not going to admit my shame. I'm not going to deal with my shame. I'm going to outwork my shame. And I'm going to be so productive that people are going to have to value me even though I feel this incredible shame and lack of value inside. I'm not going to trust the value that God has placed on me as his creation and then magnified in sending his son to die for me. I'm not going to trust that. I have got to prove myself in this world. 
And my kids, my kids are going to get into that school. We're going to live in that neighborhood. They're going to be part of these activities and in this group. And I'm going to rearrange my schedule. I'm going to put my whole life, I'm going to pump all my resources to make sure my kids get the experiences that I don't get because I don't want them to have to deal with the shame that they might experience or I've experienced. We're going to cover that up with all these things. People, we are masters at covering our shame. And just like Adam and Eve, it's always something out there. We blame in order to distract from our shame. It's our environment that's to blame. We all do this. We blame other people. Look at what Adam did. This woman, like, don't you just love that? This is, women, you're going to love this. Like, the very first blame in Scripture was a man blaming his wife for the problem. Like, has that ever stopped? No, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Guys, you're going to hate me for that, but it's the reality. We blame her, and then he goes, doesn't it stop there? This woman, God, that you gave me, like none of us ever blame God, right? God, why is this happening to me? Why don't I look like this person, or why didn't I get this job, or why didn't, this, why didn't you provide that? This is true. We do this over and over again. We blame our circumstances. We blame our situations. Sociologists and and psychologists, they do the same exact thing in teaching us that this is how things work. Sociologists will say things like this. Unjust social conditions, they result in violence. Oppression results in violence. When you're oppressed, it's going to result in, in violence. There's certainly some truth to that, but let's ask this. The problem is, what made the oppressor in the first place? What made that first oppressor in the first place? Psychologists and sociologists, they can't answer that because the statistics show not every person who's a violent oppressor came from an oppressed background. That's just the facts. So where did that first oppression come from? It came right in here. It always starts here. Psychologists will say if a person is deprived of love, if there's abuse or neglect or abandonment, they're capable of very horrific things. That's certainly true in some cases. The trouble is a lot of people who have done very horrific things have not had that kind of background. That's just the facts. A whole lot of people who have done very horrible things have not had that kind of background. What if these conditions don't actually cause the evil? What if these conditions simply magnify something that's there already? That's a better description of what we see in our world. So let me ask you a very personal question. What is one important area of your life where you're struggling to trust God is good? What's one area in your life you're struggling to trust where God is good? Here's another way to approach it. Where are you covering up? Where are you blaming others, whether it's God or circumstances for something in your life? If you can identify your shame and how you're covering up and your blame, then you can follow the trail of smoke down to the fire of where you're doubting God is good. Where is that in your life? I shared with you um, 
several months ago in a series we did on uh, I'm Not Okay. It was on mental health and, and depression and those kinds of things. I share with you my journey in that series and, and some of the things that I'd struggled with uh, in my previous ministry and what happened. And for me uh, to work through that struggle, it's, it's, it, I've had to accept this truth. I, I wanted to blame those difficult circumstances in my life. And there was a lot of them. I could list, I started jotting down some of the things I'd faced during that time. We'd faced a few years of extreme medical challenges in that season. Uh, we were in Texas Children's Hospital for, for over three months with one of our kids. And then over the years follow, had to make multiple trips, often weekly, a uh, five or 400, 300 mile journey from Laredo weekly going up there. My wife was going back and forth. We had to sell our home at that time and lose 20 years of equity that we'd built to pay for medical bills. And we were living in a tiny little trailer for two years with no central air, driving an hour in to work during that time while we were trying to manage those. Those are some of them. I faced the removal of a very difficult staff person that lingered for several years. I had other key staff transitions that were really tough losses in a place where it was hard to get people to come and serve and, and continue to do that, all while leading two capital campaigns to raise money for property and a new facility. And those were just a few of the big things that I was facing in my life at that time. And for many, many years, those were the problem. Those were the things that I kept working to try to keep at bay to, to do what I thought we needed to do to be healthy or to go forward. And for years and years, I thought, no, my, 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 that's, my, that's my Midwestern roots. You pull up your bootstraps and you keep going forward. But God in his kindness kept bringing these things into my life to get me to realize that I'm not as strong as I think I am. And that the problems were not those things that were coming at me. They were my need for control and trying to master life in my own strength. Even as a believer, even as a lead pastor, someone who should be spiritually strong enough to know better about this. That's what crushed me. Not those things. It was my need to stay in control. It was my pride about controlling life. I thought I knew what was good better than God did. But here's something I've learned. God is a master surgeon. And he knows just the tools to use to get into your heart and deal with your sin. Church, I want to encourage you um, and I, I say this a lot because it's my role, but I believe it as well. I want to make a shameless plug right now for our small groups. You see, it's easy to skate through life on the fringes of religious living, and even at the heights of it. I've witnessed so many people avoid true community because of shame. Even highly spiritual people, people in top-level positions like senior pastors who are great at, at, at avoiding true community. They can dance around it. They can be busy at spiritual things as we all can be. I know because I can default to that if I don't ask myself, where am I truly engaged in community? 
I've witnessed people who have meticulously studied through many of the books of the Bible, but failed to uncover and admit their shame in the process. See, a small group is designed to be a place where you can take your fig leaves off. Oh, wait, wait a minute, let me, let me rephrase that. Sorry, I'm, I was trying to lighten, lighten it a little bit. In a, it, but that's true. It's a place where you are able to open yourself up and not hide your shame and share it with others. Not because they can fix you, but because they're there to point you and encourage you to the one who can deal with your shame. You see, small groups are, are a place where we can confess our junk and speak the gospel to each other. Let me say this very slowly and clearly to you. If you don't have a place to confess and repent, then you are doomed to cover and blame. It's just what you'll do. If you don't have a place to confess and repent, a place where people will preach the gospel and speak the gospel to you regularly and point you back to Jesus, you are doomed to covering and blaming. And that's why I think our small group communities are great. And they're growing in this. We're growing in this because they're designed to point you to, towards Jesus. And Jesus is the only hope we have to overcome sin. You see, our world is always going to point you to Adam and Eve's solutions. Oh, it's that problem out there. It's that racist group. It's that oppressive group. It's, and, and I'm not saying any of those things aren't true, but they're not the solution. The world will always point you to Adam and Eve's solutions. You need someone in your life to point you to the true solution. So why is Jesus better than Adam? I'm glad you asked that. Because Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not. Jesus did what you and I have not. You see, here's the miracle of the gospel. You and I deserve to die. We have recklessly and rebelliously doubted God's goodness and his infinite goodness that he's given us. We have recklessly and deliberately doubted it. We deserve to die. We look at this glorious world. We look at this unfathomable universe. We look at the miraculous, unfathomable beauty of the human body, and we arrogantly think that we know better than God. But let me just encourage you with something. This afternoon, just try, just, just do this. Just try to make a tree once, and once you accomplish that, then maybe start doubting God. Even that wouldn't put you close. But you get my point. That's how fallen and broken we are. Yet here's the good news. Jesus deserved to live. He deserved the reward that a perfect life deserved. He never doubted God, even once when God told him to perfectly obey him. This is what God said to him. God said, Jesus, I'm going to send you into this world, and if you will perfectly obey me, you're going to die. He sent us into the world, and Adam and Eve, he created us, and he said, if you will obey me, you will live. He, he gave us a reward for obedience, and we blew it. 
He sent his son into the world and he said, if you obey me, if you do everything I ask you, when you go to the earth, you're going to die. And not only are you going to be killed by them, I'm going to pour my wrath out on you that those people down there who have rebelled against me deserve. And you know what Jesus did? He said, I'll trust you. I'll trust that you are good because his Jesus, is, he's part of God. He's, he's the son of God. He's lived with God for all of eternity past. Here's the one advantage he has to us. He has always known the Father perfectly. And so you know what? He didn't flinch to go and take and do what he did. He lived like he lived because he knows the goodness of God. And when Satan tempted him three times in the wilderness with the same kinds of temptations that Adam and Eve had, Jesus didn't even flinch. He just shot God's word back to him and said, never will I worship you. And when he should have been rewarded, instead, he was punished for your sin and mine. See, Jesus is a living breathing, dying billboard that says, God is good. God is good. Look what I have done for you. Don't doubt my goodness. Listen to this, and we'll close with this thought. This is right out of Romans chapter 5, as Paul reflects on this incident and reflects on what Jesus has done. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, a handful of verses starting in verse 12. I think it's up on the screen. It'll come up as well. I think I put it up there. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So how do you receive this new life, this new relationship with God? How do I avoid the need to cover my shame and blame and, and blaming others? You know, it's, it's really simple. In fact, our passage kind of points to it. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them in the garden and said, where are you? Where are you? He knew where they were, but he wanted them to come back to him for the solution of their sin. Some of you are here today and you're not sure where you are. God's calling to you saying, where are you? Why are you living so far from me? Why are you hiding from me? Why are you covering yourself and, and working so hard to, to find value that only I can give you? And God's calling you today to saying, where are you? He's reaching out saying, I want you with me. Where are you? All they needed to do was come to him. And he says, did, did you eat of that fruit? Did you, did you do that? He just wants us to admit, yes, we did. He has a solution. That solution is Jesus. 
if you know you have walked away from him, if you know that you are hiding sin in your life, you don't have to fix it or make up for it. God's done that for you in the person of Jesus. And he's saying, receive the forgiveness. Admit it. And receive the forgiveness that only comes in Jesus. He says this in 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You don't need to cover it. You don't need to blame someone else. You just need to admit it, confess it, and receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can give us. Church, this is a word for all of us. We are notorious as Christians for blaming the woes of this world on all those sinners out there. It needs to stop. That's what Lent is all about. It's remembering that we are the sinners that Jesus died for. Pointing out sin in the world is no more effective than Adam and Eve blaming each other, Satan, and God. Church, where are you doubting God today? Where are you doubting His goodness? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this truth. Thank You that whatever we think of this narrative, whether we think it's some fictitious story or it's actual historical facts, it's important to know that we know that, but the reality is I don't know of any other explanation that captures the reality of sin and brokenness in our world. So Lord, please reveal in this season. Let this be a season, not in a grim way, but in a hopeful way, where we can see the brokenness in our lives, much like a person that has an ailment and, and, it, and avoiding it doesn't help them. If they can admit it and get the help they need, there's great hope in that. Lord, there's great hope in knowing our sin because it, it drives us to taking it to the only place that it can ever be healed and defeated. And Lord, you've given us a billboard that doesn't just hang on Mopac. It doesn't just shoot across our TV screens. It's rippled throughout history. Why would this man, Jesus, who had no earthly power, no political position, no wealth, no professional sports platform, no musical platform, no fame in any way, shape, or form, why would we still be talking about him 2,000 years after his death? Lord, I... I People are going to forget about me at lunch after my funeral service. But here's Jesus, 2,000 years. Lord, help us see him and what he did as our hope. He's our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I ask you as we close this final song, they're going to play a little interlude, but right where you're sitting, would you just let this be a time of personal reflection? Ask that question. 
God, where am I doubting your goodness? And this is a beautiful song of repentance, of bringing our sin to the altar to be properly dealt with. And, and as you sing it, let it be your act of repentance. Let it be your act of, of responding differently than Adam and Eve. It's not this person's fault, it's that fault. Lord, it's my fault. I want to own it so I can receive what you have for me in Jesus Christ.